All right, our study this morning is in Mark chapter 14. Let's take our Bibles and turn there. It's appropriate that we would study this passage today because as we celebrate our anniversary and as we praise the Lord for what he's doing in the days ahead, this this passage really fits. The scene that Mark describes here in this passage may be the greatest expression of praise and adoration outside of what we see pictured in heaven in Revelation and the worship of the Lord, the worship of the Lord in Isaiah 6. But but there's a powerful example for us to follow here in what we see. And that example, let let me kind of be clear at the outset, is not so much in terms of the physical aspect of worship, although that's very important. How we respond physically, the posture of worship, the the approach to worship is very important, but it is the tendency, I think, within the last 20 years in Christianity um, to center our focus on the mechanism of how we physically worship God. For instance, there are conferences and seminars and books about getting the right atmosphere for worship services, from lighting to decibel levels to text specifications to uh, the right number of instruments and the right number of singers and and all that kind of stuff. And, And churches actually spend hours, many churches spend hours every week deciding how to produce their worship time. There's also a a planning on how to emphasize and and in some cases even elicit a physical and emotional response. And that in itself kind of leads to some uh, polarization within the body of Christ. Some congregations are very undemonstrative. Uh, you would never go in some churches and, and raise your hands or clap or, or show passion for the Lord. Other congregations are on the other end of the spectrum. They're very loud and demonstrative and passionate and, and to the point that maybe if you walked in there, you'd kind of go, this is, a little bit, this is a little bit uncomfortable for me. Now, a lot of that's cultural. A lot of that is tradition. Uh, a lot of it's dependent on where the church is located, what kind of denomination it is, and, and, and all of that. There's nothing wrong or right about that. It's just there are differences. But, but so many times, the emphasis then starts to become on what that looks like rather than the real important emphasis, the primary emphasis that should be there in terms of worship and praise. And I believe Mark 14 is pointing us to a a much more important aspect of worship. And that is, you're going to see it on the screen, that we are called to be grateful and we are called to be unashamed to praise and exalt the Lord with our whole heart. We are called to be grateful and we're called to be unashamed to praise and worship the Lord with our whole heart. Now, this text, I want to suggest this morning, is far more about the attitude that this woman has in her love and adoration for the Lord than in terms of the physical act. We'll talk about the physical act, but but I want you to see her heart this morning. She's unhesitant. She's humble. She's 
deeply sacrificial in terms of what she does. She's unapologetic in terms of showing honor to Jesus. She's not ashamed of it at all. And it's so significant. This is such a a deep act of worship that this woman does that Jesus says in verse 9 that what she does will be talked about whenever the gospel's preached. And we know that's true because we're talking about it 2,000 years later. What she does, the attitude she has in worshiping the Lord and praising the Lord is absolutely exemplary. So look at chapter 14 of the book of Mark. Let's start in verse 1, read down to verse 9. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize Jesus by stealth and to kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of a very costly perfume of pure nard. She broke the vial and poured it over his head, but some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus says, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Therefore, I say to you, truly, whatever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Now, the timing of this is important because you notice in verse 1 that it says it's just two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Both were very important celebrations to the Jews because they reminded the Jews of when the Lord had delivered them miraculously out of Egypt, taken them out of bondage by his power, and showed their absolute need for him. And both of these events that you see in verse 1 are a precursor to what Jesus is going to do. Because in two days, he's going to become the Passover lamb who would save us from our sins. And he's going to be the bread of life, which was pure from the leaven of sin. Remember, we studied two weeks ago about leaven, how it infects the dough, how sin infects our lives. Jesus was pure from the leaven. So it's very significant, the timing of this, that at the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that Jesus is becoming both of those. But the priests and the scribes hated him. And you see that they're plotting to kill him. They want to arrest him quietly and kind of grab him in the dark and then just go ahead and put him to death. But they're so concerned about the backlash that they might get from the crowds during these holy festivals. So they're kind of plotting what to do. Meanwhile, Jesus is in Bethany, verse 3. Bethany is a little town. If you're looking out from the city of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives is straight ahead. Bethany is back over the right corner, just over the hill. There's a little road that goes around the Mount of Olives, and Bethany is on the southwest corner of the Mount of Olives, just a little village. It was a village Jesus was familiar with. And he usually goes, his usual kind of Airbnb is the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He, he stays there when he comes in, but, but not this time. He's instead at the house of Simon the leper. Now, that's an important detail. Because lepers were considered unclean 
physically and spiritually. And while there were some forms of leprosy that would allow you to interact with the public, because if you were a certain kind of leper, you were segregated. You had to be in a separate community. And when you came near to anybody, you would have to cry out, leper coming, leper coming, so people could decide whether they wanted to be near you. Well, apparently Simon was a leper who was not contagious. He was able to interact with people. So, so Jesus goes to his house. But even if he is that way, there's still a social stigma to him. There's an emotional stigma where he is, is looked at differently. This is the amazing truth of God's gospel. This is the amazing truth of his love, is that he loves everybody. God loves everybody. There are no stigmas with him. There's nobody he looks at and goes, ooh, I don't want to be around you. There's no way I'm going to die for you. God just wants to pour out his mercy onto our lives. And the only factor that hinders his, his love from reaching us is our sin. Sin makes us popular. Sin makes us accepted in the society, but it's totally unclean. And it separates us from God and puts us in opposition to him. Now, that's why Jesus came. Because what does the Bible say about Jesus? It says he came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to seek and save that which is unclean. So we see here in verse 3 that he's the the home of Simon the leper. Now the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with lepers. They had no heart, no compassion. They avoided them like the plague, as my parents used to say. They they didn't want anything to do with them. And, And literally and figuratively, lepers had no place for the religious leaders. May God prevent us from ever seeing people that way and saying we don't want to have any part of them because they're not like us. Or they're unclean. Or they're, they're people that are profane or, or whatever. We're, we're just not going to associate them. We're going to be our holy cluster and we're going to be together. Here's the problem. When we avoid people who are living in spiritual uncleanness, not only do we forget that we used to be unclean, but we also are prevented from ministering to them and telling them the good news of Jesus Christ. Because nobody's going to listen to us if they sense that we hate them. That's why we constantly see Jesus talking to and ministering to people who are unclean. Not just lepers and, and Romans and Samaritans and people who are bleeding and foaming at the mouth. This is a picture right here in verse 3 of God's deeper intent, which is to offer permanent healing, permanent spiritual restoration and cleanness to every person who's affected by sin. So as Christians and as a, as a church, we can't just sit passively by waiting for those who might be seeking spiritual healing and, and spiritual cleansing. We, we can't just wait for them to come find us. We have to go find them. We have to go tell them. We have to go bring them. And that starts with having a heart for the eternal soul of every single person. Listen, if we don't care more about the destination of somebody's soul more than anything else, we don't really love them. 
If we're, if we're more concerned about arguing sports and politics and, and taking part in things that are destructive and have no eternal profit, but we're not going to tell them that you can be free from your sin forever, then what we're really doing is we are passively saying, I'm okay with you being unsaved. I'm, I'm okay with you being unclean and condemned. We have to have a heart for people. We have to have a love for people. We have, to, we have to know that man's philosophies and man's ways lead to total destruction. They're a dead end. And yet here we are. We have the words of life. We have the truth that we can give to them. Romans 10 says, Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on the one in whom they haven't believed? And how can they believe in the one of whom they haven't heard? See, it's up to us. It's up to us to tell them. It's up to us to care for them. It's up to us to communicate to them that Christ came to save us all. Now, acting on that is going to be a sacrifice of our comfort. It's not going to be easy. Willingly engaging with people that are not like us, that don't look like us, that don't think like us, not, not for the purpose of being conformed to their convictions and their lifestyles, but to influence them with biblical conviction and biblical lifestyle and to let them know that they can be spiritually transformed by Jesus Christ. You know, if there's one hope I have for this church in years 9 and 10, if the Lord doesn't come back before them, it's that we're going to become more evangelistic. We're going to become more outreach-oriented, personally and as a body. And that over the next two years, I pray this, that hundreds of people will become saved in this church. Hundreds of people. That any growth that we have is not because people are coming from another church. I don't want people from other churches. Stay at your own church if you have a church. I want to see people get saved. I want to see lives transformed. I want to see people on their faces crying out to God saying, God save me. And then we get to minister to them. That's the kind of growth I want. And I pray God will bring that to us. But that starts with us. It starts with us having a heart for people. And the driving impetus of that, the, the motivating factor of that in our lives is going to be centered on two things. Because we're not going to do this. We're not going to have that approach unless two things are true. One is that we are grateful to the Lord Jesus Christ for his redemption and cleansing in our lives. And the second is that that love makes us unashamed to praise him and live for him. The Spirit of God, look back at the text. Look, look at the sharp contrast between verses 1 and 2 and verses 3 and 9. The Spirit brings this contrast between the selfishness and the self-righteousness of the priests and the scribes who were jealous and angry and privately plotting how they were going to grab Jesus because they want to protect their own interests and they want to keep control and he's threatening that and he's exposing them and they don't want any part of that so let's just get rid of him. That, that's one hand. That's verses 1 and 2. And then there's this woman who's so humble and so spiritually broken and so thankful to the Lord. And so willing to openly worship him in front of everybody. And what she does here with this small little vial of expensive perfume 
illustrates this morning three very important and three very essential components of our worship. Now, let's be really clear before we look at those. Worship is not just a 20-minute set of songs in a service. Worship is not even our personal time of praise and fellowship with the Lord. Both those things are wonderful. Both those things fall under the concept of worship. But the extent of worship, listen very carefully now, the extent of worship is how it's integrated into every aspect of our lives. Worship in our lives of the Lord is either clearly present or notably absent. Either our love and our gratitude and our praise for the Lord is infectious and impacts those that we come in, uh, come around and, and, and impacts how we think and how we speak and how we act, or there is kind of a disaffectedness and, and, and uh, kind of a, a dullness and even to the point of a little bit of disdain that we don't really want to be known for that. We don't really want that to show. We, we just kind of want to do our thing and come to church and call ourselves a believer, but, but we're really not going to show our love and worship of the Lord. Now, the interesting thing about this is this is not one of those truths that can be lived out halfway. It can't be manufactured and kind of manipulated because hypocrisy is very obvious when it comes to worship. But the opposite is also true. Where there is genuine love, where there is genuine adoration for the Lord, where that's in our hearts, it's coming out our pores, it's so clear to everybody we run to, and it encourages them and inspires them. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in places and experienced that. I have so many times where I went somewhere without the right mindset, maybe it was because of sin, or I was bitter, or angry, or scared, or whatever. And then I walked into a place, and people were just worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth. And they were showing the evidence of lives that had been transformed from darkness to light, and just praising Him. And you know what that does? That, that lifts your spirit. That encourages your soul. And I pray, and we talked about this as leaders, I pray that this church will be that kind of place. We say it's a place for refreshing, and I mean that not just personally, but for each person that comes here, I pray that every person that walks in these doors, we said last week, will sense the presence of the Lord immediately when they walk in, and then they will experience joy and gratitude from being in his presence. Think about all the times in the Bible that stand out because people were worshiping the Lord without any shame or any hesitation, openly and boldly. Abraham, who went around building altars everywhere he went, everywhere he'd settle, he'd build an altar and praise the Lord. Joseph, who wept at God's restoration that God had used him and rescued him out of jail and then his brothers show up and he sees them and they don't recognize them and he has to go behind the curtain and weep because God has provided and restored them. David, when the ark is coming into Jerusalem, he's dancing and jumping up and down and, and his wife thinks he looks like a fool but he's just praising God. He doesn't care what anybody, including his wife, thinks because he's going to praise the Lord. Josiah tearing his clothes when the law was read and he realized that Israel had not followed the law and he tears his clothes in humility 
and says, we need to follow the Lord. Job praising the Lord, even when everything was taken away, even when he lost everything, saying, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The shepherds rejoicing, telling everybody when they saw the baby Jesus, the lame man who leaped up and praised the Lord when he was healed, the Philippian jailer who fell on his face in front of all the other prisoners and wept and said, I want to know what it means to come to Christ. And his whole household was saved. Not one of those people was reticent. Not one of those people was closed. Not one of those people was worried, what's somebody going to think if I do this? There was just an outpouring of praise and an outpouring of worship before the Lord because God had changed them. Them, and they loved him for it. That's what we see with this woman. Look back at it. Several texts, it's in all four Gospels. Several texts say it was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who had sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his teaching, and who showed up at the tomb on the morning of the resurrection. Apparently, they all knew Simon the leper. Bethany was a small town. And because Simon was unclean, the theory is that he had asked Martha to cater the meal. Because we know Martha was good at that, right? So because he couldn't ritually prepare the food because he was unclean, he may have said to Martha, because another text says Martha was serving, he said to Martha, hey Martha, Jesus is coming over. Why don't you come over to the house, bring some food, fix it up, and we'll all sit around and have a meal. But Mary is there with Lazarus we see and the other disciples. But Mary's there and she's listening carefully to the Lord. She always listened carefully to the Lord. And I believe, and I didn't see this before this week, I believe Mary understood exactly what was going on. Remember the disciples, even at the Last Supper, are still confused. What's he talking about? What do you mean you're going to be betrayed? Where are you going? Where's, where's Judas going? What's happening? And they're arguing about who's going to be greatest in heaven while Jesus is saying, this is my body which is given for you. But Mary had listened. And I believe she understood exactly what was going on. And I believe she knew that this was the time when Jesus was going to be betrayed and crucified. So during the meal, she gets up and she takes this little vial of perfume And she breaks it open and she pours it over his head and his feet. The oil on his head symbolized the anointing on Jesus as king. You remember in the Old Testament when Samuel would be told, anoint that king. He goes to David and he pours oil over David's head. That was the sign that this was the king. This king, Jesus, is willing to lay down his life for mankind in order to save them. And then she pours the oil on his feet, and that symbolizes his anointing for burial and the fact that he's going to be glorified in his resurrection. And Jesus mentions that in verse 8. She did what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for the burial. She understood what was going on. She's worshiping the Lord. Now, we see what's happening here, but my question then becomes, what are we saying when we worship the Lord? What, what, what are we communicating about ourselves? What are we communicating about the Lord when we praise him with our lips like we just did? A beautiful time of worship this morning. We praised him with our lips. What a beautiful name it is. We, we, beautiful, beautiful words of praise, okay? So what are we communicating? 
When we sit and study his word to show ourselves approved. When we gave, hopefully cheerfully, to him this morning. When we serve him, as many are this morning, serving our kids and ministering to them. What are we communicating? When we live by his spirit, when we tell others about the hope that's in us, what are we communicating? Those are some of the actions of worship that we're very familiar with. But like Mary with her perfume, they show our love and gratitude. But what else did they say? I want to suggest to you this morning, there are three things that are communicated and they come right out of this text. The first one is that worship shows that we see Jesus as worthy of our full commitment. Now you say, well, of course Jesus is worthy. Yeah, but do we see him as worthy of our full commitment? Because the literal meaning of the word worship is worthship, W-O-R-T-H-S-H-I-P. It means that you see someone as worthy. Mary doesn't take this perfume and break it and pour it over Peter's head. She doesn't pour it over John's feet. She doesn't pour it over Simon as respect that he's the host. She only pours it on Jesus because she knows that he's the only one who's worthy of her praise and commitment. And you and I are faced with the exact same decision every day. What do we communicate? Now, it's not overt like breaking a perfume bottle, but we send messages all the time about how much or how little we value Jesus. And it comes back to openness. It comes back to adoration versus hesitation or, or carefulness in being identified as his. This even applies to church. This is not the only place that we worship the Lord, right? But it is a set place, and it is a central place. It's an anointed place. We come here to gather to worship. So let's just take our participation here. If someone walked in this morning, and maybe you're brand new this morning, so I'm speaking to you. If someone walks in and observes us only here at Harbor Rock, all right, what conclusion would they come to about how much we value Jesus? As they watch us, let's just, I'll use me as an example. As they watch Paul Rhodes, would they see our constant, consistent presence? Or is our attendance kind of scattershot based on our other interests and how we feel and what's going on and what's on TV and, and what, what's happening? Would they see us? Let's, I want everybody to smile right now because I'm about to hit, hit us a little bit, all right? Everybody smile. Come on, give me a big smile. I know you don't want to, all right? Would they see us arriving early? Would they see us coming either to prepare to serve or to prepare to be in the presence of the Lord versus kind of casually wandering in late? I know you clap because we're all guilty of this one, right? This is one we need to work on because how many would agree we have an on-time problem here at Harbor Rock? The service starts at 9.30. We should be here at 9.20 at the latest, not 9.37, all right? And I'm not speaking to anybody specifically because every one of us is guilty. But what does that communicate? What does it communicate when the worship begins, when the singing begins, and the place is half empty? 
And, and we're kind of wandering in. Now, I'm not trying to be mean. You know me well enough. But, but this is something we've got to talk about, right? Would the observer see us pouring out our praise to the Lord, either in singing or in study or even in our conversations in the hallway? Or would they see us kind of being reserved in our posture and kind of holding back and hesitant to talk about what the Lord's teaching us and what the Lord's doing in our life and, and kind of restrained in, in singing and just kind of standing there? Sta- what, what do they see? In other words, do they see us genuinely living out our faith, effusive, and I word that use that word carefully, effusive in our love and our gratitude to the Lord, or would they see us kind of struggle with our passion and our praise? Listen, if we can't do it in this place around our brothers and sisters in Christ, how do we think we're going to go out there and impact the world and all of a sudden become bold around non-Christians? If I can't stand and raise my hands and praise the Lord with full voice and whole heart in this place, I can't out there. No way. It's not going to happen. So worship shows that we see Jesus is worthy of our full commitment. Second, would you see that worship shows we're willing to sacrifice what's most precious? We don't know where Mary got this perfume. Maybe it was a gift from her parents. Maybe, maybe it was really meaningful to her. Maybe it was some kind of an investment. But there's no question that it was extremely valuable. The texts all say, you see it here in verse 5, that this was worth about 300 denarii. A denarii was a day's salary. So this was about 300 days of salary, about 80% of a year's wages. So scholars estimate in today's dollars, this was worth about $50,000. Now here she is, and she's breaking it open, and she's liberally pouring it out on Jesus And then another text in Luke says that she wiped his dirty feet with her hair and kissed his feet. I guarantee you, nobody wants to get near my feet and do that. And Jesus had been walking through the dust with his sandals, with all kinds of dirt and yuck on his feet. And here comes Mary, and she pours out this expensive, extremely, extremely valuable perfume onto his feet. And she uses her hair and wipes them preciously and and kisses them and, and adores him. And of course, all the disciples are, oh, geez, look at that. Are you kidding me? Something that valuable? Why would she have done that? Why why did she waste that valuable thing? Here's the thing. Mary saw greater value in Jesus. She breaks open what's most precious to her. And that raises a question for us. Would you and I be willing to sacrifice something that valuable just to worship the Lord? Would we be willing to sacrifice something that valuable just to adore him, just to trust him more completely, just to tell him, Lord, we love you. We love you. We love you. Think about the extreme examples of this in the Bible. Noah, who gave up 12 decades of time, who sacrificed all his friendships to be the one who would be the survivor of mankind. 
Abraham who gave up his dream when God says, take that son of the promise that you've waited a hundred years for and go sacrifice him. And Abraham gets up the next morning and goes all all the way to the edge of death as the knife is poised above his son's chest in order to be blessed and become a great nation. Job, who gave up all that he valued and loved, but didn't curse God when his friends and his wife said, you need to just curse God and die. He said, no, blessed be the name of the Lord. And God doubly blessed him. Daniel, who gave up safety and a life that would be easy when he could have been in the palace enjoying all the riches of the kingdom. And yet he said, nope, I'm taking a stand. I don't want to eat the king's food. I want to do what God has called me to do. And that led him to lead Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar to faith in God And it helped him to save a nation. John the Baptist who gave up comfort. And gave up any semblance of normalcy. To live in the desert clothed in in animal furs. And eating locusts and honey. In order to be the one to prepare the way of the Lord. And lead many to salvation. and, And a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And would be called by Jesus the greatest man. Who's ever been born of a woman. And you know what the Lord did with all those people who were willing to sacrifice? He blessed them far more abundantly than he would have if they hadn't been willing to sacrifice. So when you and I were rarely asked to give on that level, we still have to ask, would I? You know, last week we talked about breakthrough and just... If you're not tithing already, just coming up to a tithe. Or if you're at 10%, just going to 11%. I'm not going to talk about that a lot. In fact, I'm rarely going to talk about it. Because it's not to inspire guilt or pressure. It's just a simple principle. What will we sacrifice to the Lord? What will we sacrifice? We're asked so little in terms of sacrifice. But worship shows we're willing to give up what's most precious. Last thought. Worship shows... That we won't hold back in expressing our love for him. Look back at verse 3. It says that she broke the alabaster vial of pure nard. That's an expensive perfume from the spike nard bush. And she poured it all out. Because the only way you can really worship is to pour it all out. And the fullness of her sacrifice was so obvious that John 12 says that the fragrance of the perfume filled the whole house. Now the spirit is very clear. Look at one more thing. The spirit is very clear to indicate that she did not hold anything back. She didn't just take the perfume and say... Drop. Drop. This is really expensive stuff, you know. I got to drop. Is that how she did? Is that, the te- is that what the text says? Text says that she broke it open and she lavished it on Jesus. It's because true sacrifice breaks open the vial 
And true worship breaks open praise and thanksgiving. And true worship breaks open finances to give to the Lord. And true worship breaks open the testimony of what God has done to change our lives. It isn't worried about others and it doesn't hold back. But it starts with breaking it open. And that correlation to what we did last week with breakthrough hit me late last night because if we're wanting the Lord to break through in our midst, it begins with us being willing to break through by opening up that vial of adoration and commitment. Now, when we do that, let me finish with this. There are going to be two obstacles. The first obstacle is going to be fear of how it's going to look and what will happen if we sacrifice that much. Well, that's a great concept, Paul, and I need to break open praise and, and giving and, and service and all that kind of stuff, but, but I'm scared of what's going to happen if I do. Listen, the Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. God's love and God's faithfulness casts out all fear. Do you think if you give abundantly to the Lord that he's going to go, thanks, I'm not giving you anything in return. He promises to bless us abundantly more than we can ask or think. So fear's the first obstacle. Second obstacle is criticism. People who are hypocritical are always going to be the ones who are the loudest. They don't want to break the vial themselves. Look at the disciples. Whoa, we're indignant. Why, why was this wasted that could have been given to the poor? They were scolding her like they had ever talked about giving to the poor before. Now the disciples suddenly are ph- philanthropists. Like, we should, we should give to the poor. Well, you guys didn't even want to feed the 5,000. You guys didn't even want to gather up some bread. It it took somebody to find a kid with loaves and fishes. You guys wanted to send everybody else. So you're talking about feeding and helping the poor? Don't criticize her. Don't scold her. She did what she could. Listen, we've affirmed that the Lord is at work in our midst. And I believe we want to be right in the center of that work. I pray we're asking for and expecting a breakthrough. But God wants to see us love him so much that we are willing to sanctify ourselves. And we are willing to sacrifice. And we are willing to serve him, which Romans 12 says is what? Our reasonable act of worship. Worship. Lord, we love you. Because we love you, we sanctify ourselves. Because we love you and sanctify ourselves, we are going to sacrifice ourselves for you. And because we're going to sacrifice ourselves for you, we're going to serve you. And I pray, oh church, let's hear this day in our 8th anniversary. I pray that our worship of the Lord will be unrestrained and unashamed. Like Mary pouring that oil out on Jesus' head and feet. That our worship of him will be bold and courageous and loving. Let's ask him to help us do that. Let's pray.